The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, your busy business boss, executive, strategist, and transformational leader, whose mission on this show is to educate, engage, and energize the global community on topics of sustainability and ESG. Okay, ESG Energized audience, Tim Bainches from Carbon Cred, the CEO of Carbon Cred, has graciously come back on the show as has agreed to answer some of the tough questions, the hard-hitting questions that I have been gathering around the topic of carbon credits, carbon offsets, and he is. Are you ready to go, Tim? Are you going to take? Are you going to take some of these questions? Absolutely. <laughs> you hit me with them, Tim. and we'll try and see what we can do. So, just to refresh everybody's memory, um, if you didn't hear last week's show, uh, CEO of Carbon Cred. Carbon Cred is a a a company that's offering a solution whereby people can get involved through their own personal commuting activities in the reducing emissions and working with companies who are also looking to reduce emissions through the scope three footprint that is created by their employees. It's actually a brilliant solution. We had, a, I really encourage people to go back and listen to last week's show because Tim's approach and thinking around this space it goes beyond just creating an app. You know, he didn't just wake up one day and say, I want to create an app, uh, whatever. It was a, out of a passion and a concern uh, for what we are doing in on this planet and really being able to to make a difference. So Tim is, is going to answer some of the questions, and here we go. Here's the first one. And we talked about how you've actually included people that are climate skeptics in your organization. And I said to you on the last show, there are climate skeptics. But on the other side, we also have people that are skeptics around the carbon credits and the carbon offsets. So here's the first question. Mm -hmm. What's the ultimate point of these carbon offsets? So let me say, if you, if, if you avoid five tons of CO2, sure. but you sell it to someone else as an offset, and then they emit five tons... How is the planet even better off? That's a really good question. Um, you have to thank your uh, listener for that one. I, I, have a, I have a smart audience. I agree you do. Um, I'd start with saying that if, you know, the, the obvious sort of first thing is to say that if, if neither party, the person who, you know, offsets their emissions or the person who wants to buy them, if neither of them actually make that emissions reductions, then you wind up with twice the emissions. So in that case, you would wind up with 10 tons because instead of five tons. So that's one first obvious. But of course, we want to tackle the, the heart of the, the question. Um, one of the challenges we're still facing as a society is that if companies don't emit, we don't get our convenience and necessities of life like 
for example, home heating or in now sadly some cooling and even products and food, right? So it, it takes 10 petrochemical calories of energy to be able to produce a single calorie of food that we eat. Oh, so, let's repeat that. It takes 10 petrochemical calories to produce one calorie of food. I need people to let that sink in. That's mm-hmm. a great stat. Okay, sorry, keep going. So how can we uh, mitigate these emissions in the most efficient, least painful way possible? Because we, we can't necessarily turn off uh, the heating in wintertime. But I think as we talked about in what we're building as a company, you can take a bus or you can ride share or you can cycle to work. So we need to actually have use carbon credits to help us take the most effective actions that are realistically possible for us. We can't cut down on the food we're producing or necessarily eating as a society, but we can make the right kind of sacrifices that make sense. And if we don't address these you know, challenges right now in a voluntary way, we could see more mandated uh, challenges that have you know, negative externalities in the future. So the ultimate point of carbon credits is, from a free market perspective, the most efficient use of somebody reducing their emissions in a way that makes sense because it helps us, in some cases, offset for those companies that don't have the ability to offset yet, but we desperately need or do still need uh, the products that they're producing. Okay. Okay. I think that's fair. Here's the next one. Why bother trying to avoid or reduce commuting emissions? Aren't electric cars the future? Or, you know, won't that just be sorted out once we all have Teslas? I'm going to be very careful in how I, how I answer this one. <laughs> I, think, I think there's people on who would intuitively, you know, want me to delve into the technology of electric cars. I'm going to steer away from that. And, and address the, the other challenge I think that we see. And if you just give me a second here, let me check. I, I have this, I think, in my notes on the adoption piece of electric cars. Give me a sec. Yeah, uh, here we go. Um, it's saying that about 5.8% of the cars sold in 2022 were electric cars. So when we that sounds think about, about right. that, yeah. And then globally, I think it was uh, 13%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The okay. challenge with that, though, thought process, and assuming that we are doing that, is to say that the average age of a car, though, in North America is, is about 12 years old. And so okay. what this implies is, even if you see a 5.8% adoption in the market, you now have to wait you know, a couple decades for it to be a much more meaningful portion of the market. And then you also have the fact that the age of those cars comes into play. So you have two things that are compounding. So with the solution in this case that, you know, one is sort of trying to do when you reduce your commuting emissions, really be thinking that it is applicable to reduce your commuting emissions, even if you're looking at the future being electric cars, because the ramifications are at least a couple decades down the line for there to be such a wide adoption of Teslas, for example, or electric cars in the market and you can only rely on that, say, still yet a couple decades down the line. Okay. Not to mention the infrastructure challenges that go along with that that we've talked about on this show many, many times. 
I think okay. you heard I intentionally steered away from that portion of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, we've already covered that on this show yeah. in spades. All right, here we go. Next question. What makes carbon credits real? Can't someone just make them up in a spreadsheet? How do we know they actually represent anything? Because we've all heard about fraud in, in examples. So what do you sure. say to that? That's a, another solid question. I would say the carbon credit market is worth about a trillion dollars. Okay. And there's different types of credits. There's the compliance market, there's the voluntary market. Both have advantages and, and you know, address different challenges. But it can really be thought of as a commodity market backed by state, federal, and international agencies. And depending on where you draw the border of that, that's essentially what makes carbon credits real. So similar to how you know, you have, we have the stock market or anything like that, and the very fact that people you know, all participate in that, it's the same way that people are participating inside the carbon credit market. And in our, in our case as a company, carbon credit is being actively you know, verified by an industry leader uh, standard. So the UN for voluntary credits recognizes about eight carbon registries and of those, about four are really relevant to the areas that we're talking about in the voluntary space. And we're working with one of the top two. So we need to make sure that whatever carbon credits are being generated are in fact getting checked by the right agencies. So there is definitely an impetus. You can't also just make these up, which I think was one of your questions, uh, because if you do, the price on them is worth virtually nothing because it is an interesting phenomenon in the market. I think we everyone knows that carbon credits go for different prices. Yes. I like to think of it in terms of a dollar. So we have a Canadian dollar, which is different in price to the US dollar. And then we have, say, the Zimbabwean dollar. And we have these three different currencies that all have one dollar and all represent something. And yet the value is different. From the carbon credit perspective, we can say, well, that's like a ton of CO2. We value those tons of CO2 based on the economies, based on the sort of strategies, based on the regulation that backs those, in this case, tons of CO2, just like a currency would be backed by the economies that you know, they represent. And so okay. from that perspective, when we, when we think about the types of credits, we would be thinking about the highest quality being very important. If you just showed up with your spreadsheet and tried to you know, fake it, well, your carbon credit would be worth almost nothing. It wouldn't have that same value. Could you get away with it for some time? I'm thinking Bernie Madoff, right? And making, making stuff up in the marketplace, you know? Could sure. somebody make it up for a while? I, I'm sure there is that thing. I mean, I'm, it's not like that we have seen person challenges. evil person out there? We, we, <laughs> not, we definitely have seen challenges like that. But I mean, the stock market wasn't abandoned because of Bernie Madoff. Um, Good point every financial system has its challenges to overcome. It's the ability of that system to identify and mitigate fraud and have the structures in place that police it that makes the key difference. And the carbon credit market is so much younger than say the more developed markets. And yet the speed at which it's putting those parameters and those safety sort of and fail safe systems is at a very, very rapid pace. So. I think we are 
doing the right things, we're in the right direction, and we are seeing that there is this, you know, policing that is starting to happen much more actively, and it is being uh, caught much more frequently, so that way the responsibility um, does not have to fall to the individual uh, carbon credit purchaser, but to the system to ensure that the quality is of the value, has the value that people anticipate it has. So just like anything else, there's always going to be fraudsters that are lurking in the midst. But what you're doing is you're giving us some uh, some comfort that the system is continuously evolving to be able to, uh, to, to meet those out. Okay. So, and also, I would say, do always be looking for the types of accreditation and the validation. There's a lot of uh, top agencies that have it. I mean, you can look at the methodologies from, say, you know, CAR, ACR, uh, very mm-hmm. gold standard. And there's challenges across the board that, you know, people wind up facing. But you don't throw the, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. Well said. Well said. So uh, another observation that I've, that I've gotten in is that people think that carbon credits are some sort of accounting trick, right? Mm-hmm. So why don't people just go out and, and plant trees or work on wind farms or ocean restoration? You know, why, why are we dealing with these credits? Well, I think it's because we need to reduce our emissions, right? And we need to bring down those net carbon emissions. So the activities that, you know, wind up being able to pull the CO2 and sequester it more effectively wind up being crucially important. And we need to generate as many of these carbon offsets as we possibly can to address it. Uh, I think I mentioned on the last show, I I think I did, where I said we were speaking to one Fortune 500 company who said there's Mm -hmm. not enough carbon credits in the world to offset our emissions. So there is a limited amount. We need to generate more. We need to be able to solve this problem. In our case, as carbon cred, what we've tried to do is be able to create an entirely new source of carbon credits. So everyone is still thinking typically ag and forestry and, you know, a variety of other ones. And we're saying, actually, how about we leverage the individuals, personal individuals like you and I choosing to reduce our emissions. Mm-hmm. And I think that winds up being particularly valuable. And it's really not a zero-sum game. You don't have to choose one or the other. It's not like you should you know, be putting all your eggs in one basket. All of these solutions are valuable. And unfortunately, because, however, though, because climate change is increasing uh, in terms of the CO2 in the atmosphere, it is creating challenges even for some types of carbon credits. Um, we're seeing increased risk in some types of carbon credits, um, but we still need to be able to drive them faster because otherwise the consequences are even sadly more dire than we're in some cases seeing now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is okay. where I'm going to plug what we're doing. I'm going to say <laughs> ours are irreversible because you can't go in, into the past and emit. So we're fortunate there. And because we're using, you know, the highest quality verification from a registry and, and you'll, I, I'm intentionally not really saying who that is, but it'll become right, public very right. soon. Um, we would have be producing something that, you know, is of the absolute top flight. So companies well, being able to leverage this themselves mean you get the best of the best for your company. Okay. Well, let's focus on those, on those big emitters for just a second. Because mm-hmm. uh, I have another question in this in this mix that kind of looks at them. It doesn't if if you're selling offsets to these big emitters, doesn't that reduce 
their motivation to truly wean our economy away from fossil fuel dependence? Aren't the emissions caps there to force them to find other ways of providing and, and consuming energy? I'm going to say I would be, I would like to take a step back and actually talk about how we think, we probably could think about this from a free market. So companies in a free market really only exist to supply us with what we as consumers want and buy. So demand okay. is really setting supply in this case. So the only reason that companies are having to emit is because I am purchasing their products. Okay. And I would imagine you and, and you know, all of us as Very much so. Absolutely. So what we're trying to bring to the market from Carbon Cred's perspective is by saying we reduce our consumption on a personal level. By personally going and reducing our consumption, we are reducing demand. What this does is it reduces the need for companies to emit on our behalf. We are fixing and addressing supply by changing our demand. And when you're doing this, you know, one person at a time, you can feel isolated. But by bringing a whole bunch of people together, you start to create an environment where everyone is working together towards a certain goal. And from this, we can tackle demand right at the source. And this starts to address the problem that occurs even when, a, say, a, com a country implements, say, stricter climate change legislation. What this often does is because demand still hasn't changed, we still want those products, it drives those products to be produced somewhere else. Now, if we wind up having a, actually attaching a value to the demand side, or we reduce our demand, and we attach a value to those carbon credits that are being generated by the change in personal demand, we wind up creating an equalizing factor. So, it no longer is that we can push that responsibility or you know the, the supply to somewhere else, but because we're putting a price on that carbon, it enables us to say, okay, well, you can't just sort of farm it out to another country who doesn't have as good legislation. It actually becomes viable to continue to buy products from companies that have in fact reduced their emissions under that tighter regulation. And you can sort of equalize the competition much more globally as a function of valuing the carbon at a global price and and having demand change how supply responds. I think I might not have been so clear on that. Let me try and frame that another way. When you create a free market for individual emissions carbon credits, for example, someone reduces their transportation. And I start with transportation, but I'll, I'll send give you a spoiler. We've got some really exciting stuff coming down the pipe. But we start with something like transportation. And that person now has this carbon credit and they decide to sell it into the market. And someone chooses to buy that. What you are starting to see is at an individual level, we are all deciding what we value as the price of CO2, which means on a greater, more esoteric level, we are all setting the price of essentially climate change and emissions for us as a person on individual level. And we are all getting a global voice by participating in this market. Now everyone gets to do that because everyone starts to earn these personal carbon credits and sell them on the market. And suddenly as a global society, we set the price of what that carbon means to us as individuals. And this then equalizes the playing field across industries, across individuals, 
and we all start to get a voice that we don't otherwise have. And we all get to say, well, I value climate change essentially at this much because that's how I'm selling my personal uh, carbon reductions or for lack of a better term, the quote unquote right to pollute into the market or not sell it into market, which demonstrates that you value climate change and, the, and that you know, CO2 emissions very, very high. And as we continue to set this as a society, we will create that paradigm where we all understand what this means to us and we all get to have that, as I said before, that personal voice. Okay, and I think that is hugely important, but I'm now gonna ask you an even tougher question. Uh, we're talking about the individual voice, the, what mm -hmm. the individual values, what the, what the value individual creates in value in the marketplace, but realistically, realistically, is anything we can do on a consumer level in this country any more than a rounding error against global industry emissions? Is there actually a point? Mm -hmm. Well, that's why we started with transportation emissions, because it is, in our opinion, quite low-hanging fruit. It okay. is, when we talked about, for example, you know, it's hard to turn, you can't turn off your heat in, in the winter, but you can do something like take, you know, personal transportation. What does okay. that transportation do? Just in North America, it's like 100, if you did it just one day per week, if everyone in you know North America, and this is you know drills down, and I can, I'm happy to sort of discuss the math with people, but it winds up being about 100 megatons per year for North America, which winds up being pretty non-trivial. And then if you add in the EU, it's about 150 megatons. So if people did this just two to 2.5 days per week, it's one percent of global emissions. I think if we all realize that just taking that action, that slight bit of inconvenience of you know squishing in with someone in a carpool or having to walk an extra hundred or a couple hundred meters to hop on the bus and, you know, bring your laptop, bring a, you know, a phone, do something while you're, you know, taking that transport, we can cut global emissions by 1%. That's non-trivial. And as we expand, say, beyond transportation emissions and we look at other products and solutions in the market, we can have much larger impacts. Okay, next question. Cars are getting cleaner all the time, and there's a lot of electric vehicles, hybrids, vehicles shut off and idle, all the little technology tools that they've thrown in them. Do personal vehicles, vehicle-based emissions really matter in the bigger picture? Mm. About, I'm going to sort of launch to, similar to what we talked before, when we talk about the emissions on a barrel of oil, 20% of the emissions approximately of a barrel of oil come from the production and refining of that barrel of oil, at least where I am in Calgary. And then 80% of those emissions, which is the barrel actually getting out to the market, comes essentially from our tailpipes. Most of the existing legislation helps target and tries to target that 20%. It puts legislations in place for industry, and how do we address that? What Carbon Credit is saying, we're tackling that 80%. We want to be able to go after the tailpipe emissions that form the majority of emissions from a given barrel. So, yes, cars are getting cleaner, but any fuel that is still being used, only really most of the legislation addresses 20%. How do we get in front of people to be able to address that? And additionally, 
all tech improvements help us get to the goal of reducing our emissions. The more energy reducing tech we have, the better. The faster we can get to our goal, excellent. We have to have multiple solutions to be able to do this. Additionally, though, there's also the challenge that most people right now can't afford a new electric car. And what we're saying is we can flip that paradigm of having to pay to be able to reduce your emissions for a vehicle of that sort. But we'll actually flip the paradigm. We'll pay you to reduce your emissions with the tools that you have right now that are existing. You don't have to buy new and different and unique solutions. Start with what you have, and we will help you get to that low-hanging fruit of the 80% that we all have to participate in. Okay, but what do you say to someone who says, all right, not only can I not afford an electric vehicle, but I don't have time to walk, bike, or take public transportation to work. You know, my schedule's tight. You know, I, I value my time. What do you say to those people? Mm. Firstly, uh, we have some very exciting solutions uh, for the market that address the challenge with tight time deadlines. We just can't discuss them publicly yet, but we okay. do have actually something really exciting that's coming. So hold on so, to your hats. That's the first thing I'll tuned. say. Yes. For part three with cool. Tim Benches. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then also, and now I'm going to personalize the story and say, if we all wind up dodging our personal responsibility and say we're too busy, then we really can't expect a different outcome from you know emissions and climate change, right? So we do have to take a personal responsibility. This really is a demand story that we are the ones who are who are driving this. However, obviously as a company, we understand that, for example, working moms have to take their children and uh, drop them off, and they don't have an alternative. However, we believe that there are enough people that can actually do something, but they just need direction. And if someone is willing to pay you to take that action, you know it's real. So there's those of us who can make that and who can, you know, take those challenges and sacrifices. So I would say, give it a try. And in the interim, uh, join me, uh, carpooling, or more specifically for me, I'm, I'm actually cycling. Um, or when I have to go for meetings across town, once I'm already in the office, I do take a bus. It, I have to admit, I draw a few stairs. I have a laptop with me. <laughs> I'm yeah. super concerned about getting called out for being a hypocrite. So I'm there, you know, yeah. working, working on my laptop. But, you know, bef before long, a whole bunch of us will be doing it and, and it won't seem so absurd. But yeah, I think, I think we can all participate. I would, I would, though, say you probably don't have to be quite as extreme as me because I cycle every day. And here in Calgary, we get some pretty cold temperatures. So, you know, right around 40 and 45, it's the same whether it's Celsius or Fahrenheit and minus 45. Um, I actually, I got frostbite twice last year as a function of, of being so crazy and sort of doing it. So, I'll, you know, there's, there's something to be said for even walking because when you cycle, you obviously increase the, you know, the heat losses and stuff. But it really is something that I think we can all sort of get on board and participate in. Dude, you done lost your mind. That's all I got to say. Damn. I don't want to get called out for being the guy who shows up in the, in the private jet to a, a climate change conference. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully a little bit of frostbite buys me some credibility in the space. <laughs> okay, we're going to wrap this up with one last question, and I'm going sure. to hit you with it because it's, it's kind of directly right at carbon cred, but you've, you've been a trooper, Tim, so uh, here we go. This last one, and, and, and then we'll let you be. Okay. 
It seems that this product of yours is designed for people and companies that agree with climate change. Not everybody does. Mm. What do you say to that? I think I started to talk about this even in our, in our last podcast, uh, where I said we did some customer surveys and we wound up you know, talking to people who agreed with climate change and those obviously who didn't. And what was really interesting is the statistics showed that people who didn't agree with climate change were even 18% more likely to participate in our app because of it was a free market approach. I wound up actually asking the people, because our survey was not just an online survey, we went and actually talked to people and we had a really good spread in um, socioeconomic status, uh, gender, age. We, did, we, did, we broke it down. It was, it was a really nice uh, spread. And one of the things when we asked people who, um, who you know, are, are, were not climate skeptics, they said, well, we should be doing this already. And I was like, ah, yes, but here's a tool. You know? So <laughs> the, the, the free market approach, though, seemed to be really what was very authentic and uh, of interest to those who were, who were climate skeptics. And then also, I would say, regardless of your affiliation, when you can get a credit for your actions that at least some people think are real um, and you can get paid for it, well, then you absolutely should do it because why not? You know, you're, gonna, you're, you're getting paid to do it anyway. Now, it starts small, but the, you know, the price over time will increase and you'll be able to sort of see increasing value. And I think, as I mentioned in the last one, a member of our team that I, is actually a climate skeptic and... I personally value this because it ensures that we're sticking to the science and the economics of solving the problem that's facing us. And I value that person's perspective and not because, not because on a personal level I necessarily agree with it, but because it helps us try to address the, the challenge that we're seeing in the market where we are consistently, increasingly, it seems to me, polarized on the topic, but how can we create something that both sides can actually agree makes sense and everyone gets to participate? So I'm definitely uh, very pro creating solutions that solve problems that make sense for both sides of the uh, market. Well said. Nice way to wrap it up. Tim Bainches, once again, thank you for being such a, a great sport and dealing with our, our tough questions and just making this a lot of fun for me. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining us. And when we'll have you back for part three sometime in the future with, when all those secret new solutions and offerings come out. Thank you, Delphina. Hopefully it answered the questions that your uh, listeners posed. And I'm sure you, if you get any more, uh, yeah, we'll keep them on hold for that third conversation. Absolutely. Thanks, Tim. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.